Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John, so if you aren't there already, take your Bibles and open them once again tonight as we continue our systematic study through this Gospel. As we come to, once again, chapter 10, uh, you know, ever since I was a small child, I really, for as long as I can remember, I've been involved with the church. Primarily, that simply means that nearly for all my life, I have been in and around people who have been those who claim to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I'm continually thankful that God has given me that heritage, even though I'm only a second-generation Christian. My father was a first-generation Christian. His parents were not saved. In fact, my grandmother, his mother, got saved when she was 81. So she was actually a second-generation to her son because he was the one that helped her come to know Christ. And I believe that God has used all of that to really prepare me for what He has called me to be in His ministry, and that is a pastor. But because of that, the Lord has seen fit for me to have a whole host of opportunities, really, to share with others the truth about Jesus Christ and how they can have a personal relationship with Christ in their own life. And since God has called me into pastoral ministry, those opportunities have only continued more and more and more as people come to our church or as I travel over Uh, to other places. And oftentimes, it's just simply because so many people believe, unfortunately, I think, that the pastor is much closer to God, that they're somehow better to share the gospel than just people who are part of the church or just any other Christian could do it. And so oftentimes people will come and say, hey, can you share the gospel with this person or that person? But whatever the case, over the years, I've I've had the opportunity to speak with many people concerning the gospel of Christ. And and during some of those times, during some of those occasions, the individual to whom I was speaking to would say to me, especially after we've had some dialogue about Christianity and they're not a believer, they would say to me, well, we're just saying the same thing about belief. In other words, what each are saying about salvation and how to get saved is just a matter of semantics. It's just a matter of our definition, how things are defined. That's really what semantics means. How how are things uh, defined? It's just a matter of semantics. In other words, since it's only semantics in what we're saying, then... It's just a matter of our definition of things. In other words, you define it one way, I define it another way, but really we're after the same thing. We're all going to the same place. And they, they speak as if definitions are, are somehow fluid and somehow unprecise. And in each of those cases, the people were suggesting that there really is no such thing as absolute truth. No such thing as a defining line in the sand. It really doesn't matter what you believe because all things are just relative to your definition of them. They're all just relative to how you define them. And that any person could call themselves or or herself, they could call themselves a Christian even though they don't believe the same thing. 
Even though they're not on the same page when it comes to the definition of what they're talking about. It's just a matter of semantics. It's just a matter of how you define it. Now, it may very well be true that meanings of words at times and over time are certainly fluid and expand in their meaning. Sometimes they cannot be hard-pressed into a singular definition. But when it comes to theology, when it comes to our understanding of God, when it comes to our understanding of how someone gets saved, the things of God and the Word of God, which is where true Christianity either lives or dies. It either lives or dies on the Word of God or it or there is no Christianity. So when it comes to that, then it is never a matter of semantics. It is never a matter of, well, you define it one way and I define it another way, as if definitions are somehow fluid. It's never that way, because the absolute truth of God requires a precise meaning. Why? Because we have a precise God. He is not something to you and something to someone else. He is who He says He is. He is defined by the definitions that He has given. He is a precise God. And we must not change the definition. We must not change or modify the description of Christianity that He has given us. Away from the way that God has defined it by His own very character and nature. And, as startling as it may be that people do that, even though it is true that God is precise, even though it is true that He is what He says He is, it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. It doesn't matter whether you accept that reality or not. God is who He says He is, irregardless of your belief system. There are still those who refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ even though God is clearly who He says He is. And they use the excuse of semantics as the reason why they don't believe. In fact, even the suggestion that the problem is mere semantics is really to blame God for the problem. I mean, just think about it. If definitions are the issue and how God has explained Himself, and it's just a matter of semantics, God can be one thing to you and another thing to somebody else. If semantics are the issue, to say that mere semantics is is actually to reduce God to someone who just cannot be clear about Himself. I mean, if God is someone different to you and someone different to you and someone different to you, then God somehow has a problem. He somehow just can't find a way to be clear so that everybody is clear as to who He is. And had God just explained Himself a little bit better, we wouldn't have the problem and everyone would be on the same page spiritually. In fact, some suggest that the reason that some don't believe in Jesus Christ today is simply because God has not explained Himself well enough. And incredibly, there are even those who say that for God to save someone, for God to actually save a person 
or the reason that some don't believe in Jesus is because Jesus, the Jesus we tell them about, the Jesus that we share with them is a distorted picture of the real Jesus. What they are implying by that thinking is that your salvation depends upon how well someone presents the gospel to you. The lost person's salvation actually depends upon you. Some time ago, I was watching Larry King live. It was a panel of scholars talking about God and what was then the Gulf War. And two of them began to discuss salvation. And one of them said this, Quote, one of the things that I believe is Jesus is God and Jesus is the source of all salvation. All of us would agree, absolutely. Jesus is God, Jesus is the source of salvation. Well, then he began to open his mouth and remove all doubt that he was a fool. He says, the difficulty that I have with condemning people for not accepting Jesus is that oftentimes the Jesus they don't accept is the Jesus you and I present to them. It is very unattractive. If the time of judgment comes of saying, I'm sorry, you don't, you go to hell, it really frightens me that perhaps I'm the one that's going to be responsible for that because I haven't presented the real love and the real power of Christ in a way that I think it should be presented. Jesus is God. Salvation is in Jesus alone. But I'm the one that if I don't do it right, God can't save you. That's the conclusion that man came to. The other man said this, quote, Well, I don't want to take the responsibility to have to design and define Jesus and somehow draft up an acceptable Jesus. The Jesus of the New Testament is the only Jesus there is. And the Apostle Paul said, if anybody preaches another Jesus, let him be accursed. So we can't invent Jesus. We just go to the New Testament. There he is. Now that one's right. You see, it isn't a matter of semantics. It's not a matter of us trying to say it right, get the picture right, so that it'll be clear enough, so that others will understand it. It's not a matter of semantics. And for anyone who has ever thought like that, or to anyone that you might meet who has ever given that kind of argument, that we're saying the same thing, it's just a matter of our definition. The verses that I want us to focus on tonight make it crystal clear that God is precise in His definition as to the who and the how we can know Him in salvation. He is crystal clear. Notice in John chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 22 to 30, although we're not going to get through all of it tonight. 
Jesus still ministering around the area where the Pharisees are. He's down in Jerusalem. And in verse 22, it says, At the time, that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews, therefore, gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Nothing could be clearer. Nothing could be more clear. It is the, it's almost the end of Christ's public ministry on the earth in just a few Short chapters as we walk through this. Jesus is going to be in the final week of his life. That begins in chapter 12. All the way to the end in John chapter 21. That's the final week of Jesus' life. So it's almost the end of his public ministry. He has spent nearly three years traversing Israel back and forth, going from the north down to the south, back to the north, down to the south, teaching the people about the kingdom of heaven, about salvation in him, about what he is. He had often said in explicit terms that he was the promised Messiah, that he was sent from God, but the people were looking for something different. They were looking for a political ruler. They wanted someone who would remove the political oppression of the government that was over them of the day. And yet Jesus is continually teaching them that He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the one the prophets spoke about. He is the one the prophets showed and talked about in the Old Testament. And and He told them all of that as... We already looked at the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would come and heal the sick, that he would give sight to the blind. And those are the very things that Jesus told the people. I I think last time we were together, I reminded us of this back in Matthew chapter 11, because John the Baptist had sent his disciples to Jesus to to find out if he was the one. John wanted to to be sure that he was the one. And Jesus simply answers the disciples of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse beginning in verse 4. Jesus says to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. And here it is. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Jesus simply quotes from the Old Testament. Go and tell John the prophets are right. What they said, I am fulfilling. 
And all of these things, Jesus is telling the Pharisees in John chapter 10, all of these are grounds for not only them, but for anyone to have recognized Him as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and to follow Him. That's not what the people wanted. So rather than to just simply admit that they didn't want Christ, rather than just to simply be honest in their own sinfulness and say, yeah, we know you're the Christ, but we don't want you. Rather than do that, even though it was crystal clear who he was, they said that it was his fault. They said that he was being unclear in his ministry explanation. That he was being unclear as to who he was. The Jews, verse 24, gather around him. He's in the temple area, in the portico of Solomon, a big hallway really, uh, covered by, or held up by columns, and he's there in the temple area. They gather around him and they say to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. Now, we need to understand that the question was really more of a subtle way of blaming their disbelief in Him, not on their willful refusal to accept Him, but rather on God. They were actually blaming God for not being clear. Simply look at what their question says. They say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Suspense, how long will you hold the truth from us? In the original, it literally says, how long will you hold our very souls captive? They're blaming it on him. How long are you going to hold our souls captive to the truthful information? to the things that we actually need to know so that we can follow you. How long are you going to hold us in suspense? In other words, our disbelief in you, our lack of following you, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with you and your lack of clarity. The reason that we don't believe in you is simply because you have not been clear enough with us. It isn't our fault that we don't believe you In fact, it's really your fault. It's really your fault. Have you ever heard somebody say, yeah, I hear what you say, but boy, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus just appeared right now? Then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe. It's just like Luke chapter 16 and the rich man and Lazarus. Can I go back and tell my friends and my family not to... To, to, to believe different. Can I, can I just go back? No, they have the law and the prophets. They have the scriptures. And even if someone raised from the dead, they would not believe. You see, those words of the Pharisees sound so familiar, don't they? They sound so familiar to us. Think about it in your own mind. Is there another place in scripture where you hear those similar words? It's not our fault, it's yours. Is there another place in Scripture? Sure there is. Genesis chapter 3. Right at the beginning. 
Right? Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had told them, you can eat of anything, but don't eat from that tree. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. They ate of it. They had disobeyed the direct command of God. It was very clear. It was not confusing. It was not a matter of semantics. God was very clear, crystal clear. They understood it perfectly, and yet they ate anyway. So God, by His grace and by His mercy, comes to the man and He comes to him first. And what did Adam say concerning his responsibility? wasn't me. Adam denies his responsibility. Adam denies his culpability. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. And when you read the account in Genesis chapter 3, you at least get the idea that Eve took half responsibility. She, she at least took some of it by saying, I was deceived and I ate. She at least admitted it to a certain extent, but not Adam. Adam tried to escape all responsibility. He tried to escape all guilt by doing what man always does. Blame shift. Not my fault. I didn't do that. In fact, we say it all the time, right? We get in a little squabble. And somebody tries to help us work out the squabble. You've heard me say this before. And we say to somebody, you made me mad. Wow, that's power. I made you mad? I mean, I actually made you mad or you chose to be mad in reference to what I did? Yeah, I, I did what I did, but I didn't make you mad. You, you got mad based upon your own sinfulness. You see, we blame shift all the time. This is what was happening. Adam said in Genesis 3.12, the woman, he's talking to God, the woman you put here with me. You see, the implication is, God, if you didn't put her here, this would have never happened. It's your fault. You're the one to blame. She gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's your fault. You put her here. One commentator put it this way. Adam blamed the woman as a secondary cause and he blamed God as the first cause because it was God who had given him the woman. It's true. We all do this. Why? Because we're all guilty of sin. We're all just like Adam and Eve. It's in our nature to sin. It's the nature of sin to blame others. And to blame other things for our sin, to push it aside, to get so far from it in our own conscience that it no longer affects us. In fact, some of us have become so refined in blame shifting, we don't even recognize we do it. Listen to yourself. What are the words that come out? Is it blame shifting words? This is what the Pharisees are doing. Rather than just take responsibility, we blame others. And even worse, we blame God. And so here in chapter 10, the Pharisees are blaming Christ for their lack of belief. They're blaming Christ. When are you going to be clear enough? How long are you going to keep us in suspense? When are you going to just tell us plainly? I mean, quit holding us in suspense. There's a whole lot of people that do that today. They've heard all the teaching about Christ. Some people can even recite the Bible verses that they've been around for their life. I mean, it was like me when I grew up as a child. They still don't believe. 
Even though the Bible says, even God, though God has been crystal clear, Romans chapter 10, if, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, we don't have to have a dictionary to understand those words. It's not a matter of semantics on what that means. But somebody says, well, gosh, that sounds so easy. That just doesn't make sense to me. I just can't believe that. There, there must be some other thing I can do. Our blatant and subtle unbelief simply blames God that He's not logical, that He's not clear enough, that the gospel seems to be missing a point or missing a part. And after all, the Bible's just so confusing and contradictory anyway. Only if God were clearer, then I'd believe. Only if God was just so much more clear. You see, unbelief may seem so logical from a fallen nature perspective, but it's not in any way the logical way from God's perspective. And his is the only perspective that that really matters. According to God, we've been told everything we need to know. In fact, according to God, in general revelation, just looking around at his creation, you have enough knowledge of him to go to him with greater questions. We know enough. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we're without excuse. If we refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ, we're without excuse. The people around Jesus say, if you are the Christ, in verse 24, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, then tell us plainly. I love that word plainly. It means clearly, openly. It's, it's, don't puzzle it anymore. Don't, don't hide yourself. And so you have to ask yourself, this is an interesting question. Did Christ himself hide his message? Did he, did he somehow hide it with these weird terms? Well, let's just think about it for a moment. Obviously, Jesus said the prophets had been clear. We looked at that already. The Old Testament was clear as to who it would be. But Jesus himself has been clear. Let's just just walk through this a little bit in in John's Gospel. Go back to the beginning of John's Gospel. Those who were the precursors of Christ, those who were laying the way of Christ, John the Baptist, even witnesses to the Jews that he isn't the Christ, right? They ask him in chapter 1, verse 19, who are you? And he confesses, he doesn't deny, he confesses, I am not the Christ. So John clearly says to the people, listen, don't be confused. I'm not the Christ. So they don't have to be confused as to who Christ is not. They know it's not John the Baptist and all the people have been flocking to John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes on the scene in chapter 2 and verse 16. Right? He drives, he's driving people out of the, out of the uh, temple for making it a place of, of merchandising. And in verse 16, he says, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. 
And his disciples then remember what was written. Zeal for your house would consume me. So his disciples immediately, their minds go back to the Old Testament. Oh, this the prophecy would say this. The one who was the Messiah would have this kind of zeal. And so their minds go automatically back to that. Oh, here's another Here's another testimony about who Jesus is. And the Jews answer and say to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? And Jesus says to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. That's not, that's not unclear speech. He's speaking about the Old Testament. He's speaking about who he is. He's speaking, obviously, as we know, about his death and his resurrection. Go to chapter 3. Nicodemus asks Jesus. Jesus answers and says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is a bit confused about that. How can somebody be born again? He's thinking on physical terms. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind goes and you don't see that. It blows this way and that way, but you don't know where it comes or where it's going. So it is when those who are born of the spirit. And so Nicodemus answers, and says to him, how can those things be? And Jesus said, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? In other words, it's been crystal clear from the Old Testament, Nicodemus. You ought to know these things. You're dead without regeneration. You're dead without being reborn. Again, verse 14 through 17 in that same chapter. As Moses was lifted up in the servant in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God loved the, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Chapter 4, verse 25 and 26, the woman at the well, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called to Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's not a matter of semantics. Chapter 5, Verse 15, he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Remember the man at the pool of Bethsaida was healed on the Sabbath. He goes, tells the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. That's pretty clear. And they understood exactly what he meant because verse 18 says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Not because he wasn't only breaking the Sabbath, but also he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They got it. It was crystal clear in his language. Verse 24 of that same chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who enters my, hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's clear. Verse 33. The testimony of John the Baptist, Jesus uses. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But his witness you didn't receive. He said he wasn't the Christ. You didn't receive him. He pointed to me. Verse 
39 and following, you search the Scriptures because in them you think there's eternal life and they bear witness of Me. Pretty clear. Chapter 6, verse 35 and following, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall not hunger, but he who believes in Me shall never thirst. You've seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, that the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's pretty clear. Chapter 7, verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. My teaching is not mine, he said in verse 16. It's his who sent me. If you're willing to do that, you'll know I'm true. You would know if you were willing. Verse 28, Jesus cries out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and you know where I'm from and I have come. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. You know why you don't know? You know the truth, but but you just refuse it. It's not because it's not clear. You you just flat out refuse it. You know it. You know it's crystal clear to you, but you just refuse it. Verse 37, I am, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I'm the living water. Chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Verse 12. Verse 24, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Unless you believe what I've shown you to be clear, what the prophets have prophesied about, what you've seen in me, what you've heard from me, unless you believe that I am God, you're going to die in your sins. Chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus says, if God were your father, you'd love me. That's pretty clear. It's not a matter of semantics. If God were your father, you'd love me. The reason you don't love me is because God's not your father. I proceeded forth and have come from God. I've not even come on my own initiative. He sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot hear my word. Verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews understood. They understood. Verse 52, now you know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. They understood what he was saying. It wasn't a matter of definitions. Verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what they do? They picked up stones and wanted to kill him. All this goes on continually through, even to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not... Enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. He's a thief and a robber. Listen, nothing could have been clearer. Nothing could have been clearer. This is exactly what Christ told the people when they began to blame him for their unbelief. How come you're not being clear to us? This is exactly what Jesus says to them. Notice verse 25 in the first part of 26. Jesus answered them, I told you. You want me to tell you plainly? You want me to tell you clearly? I've told you. And you do not believe. We just saw the places he told them that. That covers nearly three years. 
I've told you, 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 I've told you. In more ways than one, I've told you, and you do not believe. So the works that I do in my Father's name, those also bear witness of me. If you don't hear my words, hear the works. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe. Not only have I told you with words plainly, but I have showed you with works plainly. I turned water into wine. I healed the nobleman's wife. I healed the lame man in John chapter 5. I fed more than 5,000 people. One time, I walked on the water. I gave a man born blind eyes to see. And soon, soon I will rise from the dead. Nothing could be more clear as to who I am. Certainly some had believed because of the words of Jesus Christ. Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Well, the disciples, when Jesus called them, they believed. God quickened them to life and they followed. They heard his voice and they followed. They were his sheep. Others believed because of the miracles that Jesus did. As each of them revealed something else about who he was and who he is. You know what? Some still say it isn't enough. It's just not enough. John said it is enough. It is enough. That's the point, isn't it? It's really the point. It is enough. If the Gospel of John ended right here, it would be enough. These words and the works are sufficient for anyone to believe. In fact, John says, if if we wrote down everything, they would fill up the books of the world. There wouldn't be a library big enough. You see, it is enough to ask for more and more proof, more and more plain speech, to ask for more and more clarity is only futile. It's a futile attempt of a sinful heart just to avoid responsibility and to blame shift. Shift the blame away from yourself to God. So what is it then? What is it? What can explain the refusal of some to believe what is so crystal clear? Look at verse 26. He says, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. I want us to think about that for a moment because the reason anyone believes in Jesus Christ is because he came and he claimed you as his own. If God had not moved by His grace upon your life, if He had not called you to Himself, each and every one of us would remain a defiant and rebellious child. And we can even add this, that if God were not the one securing us and preserving us, if God for one nanosecond released his providential securing and 
caring of us in one moment, all of us would instantaneously refuse Him. He's the one who holds us. That's why I love that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. God is the one who holds us here. He's the one who came to us. He's the one who claimed us. He's the one who holds us. And sometimes we look at these Jewish leaders and we think, man, these are just some stupid guys. We say to ourselves, it's so clear. Why don't they believe the things that Jesus is saying? It's so clear. But listen, biblical truth, biblical truth is always clearer on this side of salvation. It's always clear. Once God moves upon our heart, once He quickens us to life, breathing spiritually makes sense. It makes sense. But if it were not for grace, if it were not for the gift of faith in your life, brought on by God and God alone, each and every one of us would still refuse to believe, regardless of how clear the information was. We'd be just like these men. And the reason these men did not believe is because, like every single one of us before salvation, it is because we are all dead in our sin. Completely, spiritually dead before God, not wanting God, refusing God at every level. Completely and utterly devoid of any desire for God. And it isn't until God breathes into us the breath of spiritual life that we desire to embrace Him as Lord. Let's look at verse 26 again. You do not believe because you are not My sheep. You see, God has to have you as one of His sheep before you'll believe. Cannot believe as a goat. You say, well, how do we know if the one who we're talking to about Christ is a sheep? How do we know that they'll hear his voice and come to him? The only answer to that question is we don't. We don't. It's not our place to know. Our only responsibility is to speak the words of God call people to believe. The ones that are God's sheep, verse 27 says, will hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. You see, God uses us simply as instruments. That's all we are. Instruments of grace doesn't depend upon us to make it clear to others. Salvation of your children, salvation of your friends, salvation of your co-workers does not depend upon how clear you are with the gospel. Oh, certainly you want to work to be as clear and as cogent as you can be in your explanation of the truth of the Word of God, but that doesn't hinder God at all. 
God is not hindered by your stumbling and your stammering. He's not hindered by any of that. It's already clear. The Word of God is clear. All we need to do is just tell Him what God said. The rest is up to Him. That's all we need to do. Just tell Him what God said. It doesn't need to be any clearer than that. It doesn't need to be any clearer than that. In fact, we couldn't be clearer than that. How can we be clearer than God is? God is already clear in His Word. Jesus Christ is as clear as it gets. And the only reason men don't believe is because they are not His. They're not His. All men refuse to believe. We're not responsible for that unbelief. They are. Some say, oh, it's just a matter of semantics. No. God says it's crystal clear. We can thank God for gospel clarity, can't we? We can thank God for gospel clarity. We can thank God for gospel grace, can't we? Oh, I'm so thankful for that. Well, I'm going to stop there for tonight because there's just too much here to keep on. Next time we're going to study the character of the sheep and the character of the father. But what we need to remember tonight is just that. The gospel is clear. We don't have to try to make it clear. We just have to be faithful instruments in the hand of God to share what he has said. The gospel will do its work with those whom are his. So when you're sharing the gospel, tell them what God says. Pray that God would open their eyes and their ears. Pray that they would stop refusing what is crystal clear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that Jesus Christ is all that you have said he is to be. To be. He is God incarnate in the flesh. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah of old, the one who has come to seek and to save that which was lost, the one who has given his life as a ransom for many, the one in whom we must believe. We cannot blame our disbelief on you for being unclear. You have been more than clear. Thank you for the gospel clarity. Thank you for saving us in spite of us. Thank you for making us instruments of your grace to others. Help us never shy away simply because we think we can't say it with the best articulation. Lord, help us to work, to be as articulate as we can be, knowing that even when we're not articulate, that doesn't hinder you at all. Just cause us by your spirit and by our obedience to you to be faithful instruments in your hand and leave the rest up to you. We thank you for these things. Bless each one here tonight as we go out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.